Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, we are uh, picking up this morning in verse 13, where we left off last week, and we will read together uh, in verse, uh, down to verse 17. First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, the Apostle Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says to the churches of God, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, as we have seen through the book of 1 Peter, you call us to be a people who keep our conduct pure and holy before the Gentiles, before unbelievers. We are to be a people who honor the authorities that You have installed. We are a people who are to submit ourselves to the various authorities that we may be under, whether in the home or outside. And yet, Lord, we know that because of the fallenness of man and his rebellion against You, that even our obedience to and our honoring and our doing of good to unbelievers may not prevent times and seasons that come upon us where we face ridicule and affliction and perhaps even severe persecutions. And Your Word calls us to be a people who even in the midst of these seasons continue to honor Christ to sanctify Him in our hearts, to keep Him holy. So Lord, I pray for our time this morning that as we are prepared by Your Word to face the inevitable various afflictions that 
we will come against as we live faithful lives to Christ Jesus. Lord, that as we are prepared to face these things, that You would already begin to strengthen our weak knees, to strengthen our hearts, to be faithful to Christ above all. And I ask this in Jesus' name. In the early 2nd century, there was a letter that was written by a certain Christian to a pagan, unbelieving man named Diognetus, who was interested in knowing more about what Christians believed. He knew, of course, that they were different from the rest of the Romans around him, that they did not worship the pagan gods, that they did not worship Caesar or bow down to him as unto a god or offer sacrifices to him. That was one distinguishing mark of Christians that he saw. He knew as well that they were not Jews that they rejected the superstitions of the Jews as it's referred to in in the letter, and that even though they held to the same Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, they were not Jews. They were something different. They were Christians. But more than this, there was something about these Christians, the way they lived, the way they treated each other, and the way they treated even their enemies, those who were persecuting them. There was something about their lives together with their doctrine that piqued his curiosity in Christianity. It's evident by the contents of this ancient letter that at the time, Christians were facing persecution on a large scale. Because in the letter, the author describes these various afflictions as if it's just a given. Diognetus knows about them and everyone else knows about them. But he also, in the letter, beautifully describes how these Christians were responding to this harsh treatment by the world. At one point in the letter, The author says of the Christians, he says they love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. By the Jews they are assaulted as foreigners, and by the Greeks they are persecuted. 
yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. These Christians that he writes of were, of of course, not living an easy life by any means. There was open and obvious hostility that was frequently directed against them. And yet, as you you listen to that, you find that these Christians were living as if in the midst of all of these sufferings, they were, above all, blessed of God. That, That these trials were a cause to rejoice in. Diognetus, as he himself observed these Christians, he, he recognized this. And it was the combination of what they believed with how they were firmly living in accordance with those beliefs, even in the face of such hatred that provoked him to then inquire more about these Christians, about what they believe. In our text this morning, the Apostle Peter teaches us that we ourselves need to be prepared for this very same kind of thing to happen. This this kind of inquiry from unbelievers. If we are living as holy men and women of God, if we are doing good to others, if we are loving even our enemies, if we are proclaiming the Word of God and pointing people to Christ and calling them to submit themselves to Christ as King, and if we're conforming our own lives to His righteous commands, there are, of course going to be people who simply respond in hostility. There are going to be people who use all of their efforts, who use all of their brain power and resources to to act hostile towards Christians. There are going to be some who are just indifferent and don't care either way. But there are also going to be people who look at our lives and who hear and see about our hope that we have in Christ, and they're going to want to know. What is this Gospel that you believe in? Who is this Christ? Why do you live the way you live? Why do you do the things you do? Why do you not do the things that everyone else is doing? Peter says that we must be ready to proclaim the hope that is within us to these unbelievers. Now, for a lot of people, this this idea of being prepared for this kind of encounter, this means for for a lot of people that I've got to be an expert, an expert Christian apologist. I've got to be a a world-renowned philosopher. I've got to have studied 
Every single objection that has ever been raised against Christianity. I have to know the, the ins and outs of all of the higher criticism that exists and that is aimed toward Christianity. And that is my preparation. And while there is certainly a place for these kinds of things, certainly a place for Christian apologetics, that is not how our preparation that is not how we ultimately get prepared. It begins, Peter says, with our own hearts. It begins by sanctifying Christ Jesus in our hearts. As, as, he, as he says here, as setting apart Christ as holy, as honoring Christ Jesus as holy in your hearts. And this morning, I want to look at what this, this statement particularly means. When we are in the midst of an affliction of some kind, when the, when the world grows hostile towards us, what does it mean to sanctify Christ in our hearts? And, and then closely related to this, how do we do this? How do we sanctify Christ? Christ in our hearts. What does this look like? Now, the uh, passage that we're in is, of course, continuing the thought and the argument of verses 9 to 12. Peter commands us to be a people who respond to evil with blessing, with doing good. And he quotes Psalm 34 in support of this this instruction where we read in verse 12, he says, Therefore the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's at this point in verse 13 that Peter asks this rhetorical question. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And the implied answer of that question, of course, is, is no one. No one will do evil to you. No man will do evil to you if you are zealous for what is good. Now, it is clear from the very next verse that this statement is not an absolute statement. Right? It's more, if you, if you will, proverbial. It, it's stating a general truth, a general idea of how people will respond. Right? Generally, if you do good to people, right, you're not going to suffer for it. That's usually how things work. But of course, general truths, the, the general way of life, sometimes has exceptions. And, and this is what Peter then raises in verse 14. The exception. An exception that, of course, Peter's audience is presently facing. And that Christians everywhere, even now, need to be prepared to face. He says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if you should suffer for being zealous for doing good, you will be blessed. 
here, of course, he's, he's reiterating the teachings of Christ that, that Christ taught himself on the Sermon on, on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus says there, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are, there are times when Christians, for no other reason than that they are living as Christians and are being faithful to the commands of Christ, there are times when Christians will suffer ridicule and persecution for that very thing. When this happens, we are not to interpret it as some kind of sign from heaven of God's disapproval of us. We're not doing something wrong. If we're just faithfully preaching the gospel, if we're faithfully obeying God, if we are faithfully abstaining from the wickedness of men in faithfully walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we suffer for it, it doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong. Peter says if that's the case, if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, on the you are blessed. Count yourself worthy for that very thing. In fact, Peter knew this well from his own life. He himself was arrested and beaten and put on trial by the Jewish Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel. And after being released, we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, that he, along with the other apostles, left the presence of the council and we're told they, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So that's, that's, that's what Peter is instructing these Christians to do. You and me to do. This is how we are to respond to our own sufferings. You are to count yourself blessed. And if you are suffering for the name of Christ, you praise God that He has counted you worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. You are, in the fullest way imaginable, following the example of Christ. Not only in your obedience to God, but your obedience unto the cross. And again, Peter says, we rejoice in that. Ultimately, as we see, as we look forward to the even greater things that are to come. Now, at the end of verse 14, down to verse 17, Peter then explains further how we are to respond to the hostility of the world. And it's here in verse 15 specifically where he gives his main charge. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Sanctify Christ in your hearts. You are suffering People are mocking you. They are slandering you. They are saying all kinds of false things against you because of the name of Christ. If you had been a Christian at this time, they they were slandering you as being somebody who just hated all mankind. If you're a Christian now who walks faithfully, you may get slandered for being a bigot and likewise a hater of 
men. And you don't like that. It's never a pleasant experience. You're shamed by everyone. Now how do you respond? How do you react? Peter says you sanctify Christ in your hearts. And there's four aspects to this that we see in this text. Four, four different aspects of what it is to sanctify Christ in your hearts. I want you to notice with me, first of all, that the, the, the first aspect to sanctify Christ in your hearts involves not fearing those who trouble you or the trouble itself. Not being afraid of the trouble that comes against you. Peter says, if you notice with me again in verse 14, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Do not be afraid. Remain steadfast. And here, as well as the the first part of verse 15, Peter is quoting nearly verbatim in Greek the words that we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, where the Lord there says to Isaiah, do not call conspiracy all that this people cause conspiracy and do not fear what they fear or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. The Lord of hosts you shall sanctify in your hearts. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. Now in the context of, of that passage, of course, there is a threat to the people of Judah and the present king, Ahaz. The northern kingdom of Israel has formed an alliance with the Syrians. Not the Assyrians, but the Syrians. And and they together have hatched this plan to overthrow Ahaz and install some kind of puppet king that they can control in his place. And Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2 says that when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, when, when they find out about this plan that has been hatched against King Ahaz and a, and a plan to overthrow the kingdom of Judah, it, we're told that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Terrified. They find out there's, there's a plan against them. And it's, it's from two nations. I mean, we can't stand against two nations. We're, we're a much smaller nation. But we're weaker. And if they want to, to genuinely overthrow me, they, they can. He's, he's terrified. And, and the people with him are shaking with fear. All throughout these chapters, God through His prophet Isaiah is telling the people of Judah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those plans. And most especially, He's telling them that they should not, they should not allow their fear to drive them into an unrighteous and an unholy alliance with the Assyrian Empire, who eventually will be 
a greater threat to them. God, God is telling them, you, 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 don't, you don't try and work this out yourself. You don't try and get through this by yourself. You don't be afraid. You trust in me. You trust in my promises. They are not to be looking at worldly powers and political strength for their deliverance, but they are to hope in God. And Peter here is drawing our attention to that text to essentially warn us against that same kind of behavior. And many times when you're, when you're reading through the Old Testament, right, you see all of these various ways that the people of Israel failed to trust in God. They, they failed to look to His promises and to obey Him. And they, they turn in, instead to idolatry and they disobey His Word. And you know, sometimes you, you read these stories and, and you think, you know, I can't believe they did that. Well, wasn't it clear? Didn't God make Himself clear? Didn't He tell them not to be afraid? Didn't He tell them not to make idols for themselves, and you're reading through it, and you're seeing they're just not getting it. And they disobey. And perhaps you, you read through it, and you're thinking to yourself, Am I, if I was ever in a situation like that, if I ever am in a situation like that, I should not follow their example. Well, this is uh, here one of those similar occasions. When persecution comes our way, it's as if Peter is saying to the church, okay, you know all of those Old Testament stories. You've read about them. And, and you wonder, how, how would I respond if I was in that situation? And it's as if Peter is saying, well, you're in one now. You've come into the story. You're sharing the experience of the Old Testament people of God. And as you find yourself in this situation, he says, do not fear. He says the same thing that the prophets of old said to the people of God then. Do not be afraid. Do not be like the Israelites who refused to enter the promised land because they were afraid of the strength of the Canaanite peoples and were overwhelmed by what they saw rather than trusting in the Word of God that He would deliver them into the land of Canaan. Do not be like the king Ahaz and the people of Judah who were terrified of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel and failed to trust the promises of God. No, you stand firm and you don't be afraid. The same command, brothers and sisters, is what we receive even today. Learn from those examples of old and be different. Obey God and do not fear man. And so sanctifying Christ in your hearts involves, first of all, having no fear. And being courageous as you trust in the promises of God. Second, it involves giving a defense for our hope. Giving a, a reason. Explaining the reason why we do not fear man, but we fear 
God. In verse 15, Peter says here, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter here rightly assumes that when you refuse to conform to the world, when you do not participate in its wickedness, when at times you have to defy it and oppose it because your obedience to God sets you at odds against it, people are going to ask you, why are you doing this? Why aren't you just acting like the rest of us? There's nothing wrong. There's nothing sinful. Sin doesn't exist. People will ask you, why do you live the way you do? For these early believers, of course, the, one of the most common questions that they probably would have faced, indeed many of them did face, why won't you offer sacrifices to Caesar? It's not harming anyone. It's just bringing affliction to you if you don't do it. Why can't you just honor the emperor like this? Why can't you worship all the gods that everyone else in the world worships? Well, what's so special about yours? Isn't he just one among many? Wife, as, as Peter refers to here in 1 Peter 3. Wife who's married to an unbelieving pagan husband. Why don't you just act like the rest of the pagan wives and submit to your husband even in terms of his religion? Why don't you adopt his gods like every other good wife that's out there? Many of you, of course, work in public school. Heaven forbid your boss or your administration tell you that if you have a student who's a boy and who has been so influenced by the cultural air that is blowing now that he has convinced himself that he's not actually a boy but a girl and he wants you to call him by his girl name, Heaven forbid the administration tell you that you have to give in to that lie. But if that day comes, you have to refuse. You cannot participate in such child-destructive policies. You have to say, in the name of Christ, I cannot obey in this matter. And when that happens, you will be asked why. And you have to be prepared to give an answer. Why? Peter is speaking here about that moment when obedience to Christ comes in direct conflict with obedience to men. That most uncomfortable moment that perhaps you have been wanting to avoid for so long, but now it's here. And when that moment comes, he says, you must not fear. 
but you must speak about the hope that is in you and your Lord and your Savior. There's a well-known account of martyrdom of an early Christian pastor named Polycarp. And in this account, Polycarp has been arrested and he's brought before a proconsul because he was preaching Christ and was refusing to submit to Caesar as unto a god. And the proconsul threatens him, warning him that if he does not renounce Christ and submit to Caesar as Lord, he will either be fed to wild beasts or burned alive. That's some real world consequence right there. That's clash, especially. And Polycarp, threat, replies to this proconsul, and he says, For 86 years I have been Christ's servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? For 86 years I've served him, and he's done me, done me no wrong. Cannot turn my back against him now. There is in Polycarp's reply, there is no great philosophical speech that he gives. There's no long explanation about the superior wisdom of Christianity in comparison to all of the other pagan beliefs of the day. There is no evidence of a man who has studied and prepared and is able and ready to debunk every single objection against Christianity that one could imagine. There is only here a simple statement which in so few words provides a bold proclamation of the Gospel and a reason why Polycarp hope in it. My king saved me. He saved me. Those little words. An acknowledgement of Christ as king. An acknowledgement and a proclamation that the king is a savior. And a testimony that he saved me. In so few words the gospel was uttered with utter clarity and boldness. Friends, in our preparation to give a defense, we are not called to be the most learned people that there is, or the most witty, or the most intellectually savvy person in the room. We are called simply to tell those who are asking why are you doing this? We are called to tell them because my allegiance is to the king. And my king is a good king. And my king, as a good king, saved me as a wretched sinner. He saved me from my sin. How can I now deny him by living in sin? It's not who I am anymore. 
so I refuse to obey on this matter. It matters not how many arguments we can make. It matters only that when the time comes, we are faithful to point the ungodly to Christ and to entrust their souls, their response to the work of the Spirit of God. And in this way, Peter says, we will be honoring Christ as holy. Now, there's a third aspect to this as well. Sanctifying Christ in our hearts also involves fearing God with a clear conscience. At the end of verse 15, Peter says that our defense must be given with gentleness, which is, of course, another way of saying that when we speak the truth, we must speak it in love, not to be mean or rude, unnecessarily offensive. There is certainly a sense in which the gospel itself can be offensive, but you can be unnecessarily offensive. We're not to have have some kind of self-righteous sense of our own importance. We are to be humble, yet firm and loving. We are to speak with gentleness, he says. But then he also adds here, he says, and with respect. But like we've seen throughout 1 Peter chapter 2 and into chapter 3, the term here that's translated throughout as respect is literally with fear. And it refers here to the fear of God, like it does, I've argued, elsewhere. Which is then connected to what we find in verse 16, where he says, having a good conscience. We speak with gentleness, with fear, having a good conscience. A good conscience is a conscience that is free of guilt because it is absolutely sure that it is being submissive in obedience to the will of God. When we are disobedient. It condemns us. that We cannot say with certainty, and especially a certainty that is grounded in the foundation of the Word of God. We cannot say in those moments that we are honoring God because our conscience may be indeed condemning us. But when our conscience is shaped and formed and informed by the Word of God, when it acquits us, it it does not condemn us, we are walking in step with the commands of Christ. And Peter is teaching us that when we come into conflict with the surrounding culture, it better be a conflict that is a result of our fear of God and a clean conscience rather than a matter of just simply being contentious. There are some people who just go looking for trouble. In fact, in that account that I read from earlier, the martyrdom of Polycarp. The author speaks there of a Christian man named Quintus who forced himself and others to hand themselves over to the Roman governor as a way of intentionally provoking martyrdom. 
he'd no doubt seen other Christians been unrighteously arrested and killed and persecuted and martyred. And of course, that, that would have been a strong, emboldening encouragement for a lot of believers to continue living faithfully to Christ even unto death. But for some, it was an opportunity to magnify themselves. And that's what Quintus did. And that's what he convinced some of these other Christians to do, to, to provoke a martyrdom. And he hands himself over to the Roman authorities, essentially daring them to kill him. He goes looking for trouble that didn't just come to him because of his faithfulness. And when Quintus came before the proconsul, he, he ended up proving himself to be nothing more than a coward and a pretender. The author tells us that the proconsul, after many appeals, finally persuaded Quintus to swear the oath to Caesar and to, off, to offer the sacrifice. He gave him. And he adds at the end of that, he says, for this reason, therefore, brothers and sisters, we do not praise those who hand themselves over since the gospel does not so teach. We don't go looking for persecution. It may come your way. Sometimes it just finds us. And in those moments, if we continue to remain faithful to God, we will be active with conscience in the fear of the Lord. And then last of all, we see that Peter tells us this fourth aspect, that sanctifying Christ in our hearts includes looking to God for our vindication. We look to God, we hope in God, we trust in God for our ultimate vindication. In verse 16, Peter says that we sanctify Christ in our hearts and we make a defense in the fear of God so that when you are slandered, they are accusing you of evil and wickedness, and, and these are false accusations. When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Peter here is pointing our attention to the future, to God's final eschatological judgment, the shame that unbelievers will experience will not be one that is experienced in this life, but is one that will come upon them in the last judgment. In that day, God will bring judgment against those who persecuted His people and He will vindicate His people for the wrongs that they have suffered. In fact, in the, in the book of Revelation, in response to the kingdom of Babylon being destroyed by God, a kingdom that is described as having the blood of prophets and apostles and the saints of God on their hands. They're guilty of this murderous behavior towards God's people. In response to its fall, we see a multitude in heaven crying out in celebration, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality 
And notice, has avenged on her the blood of His servants. They are celebrating the fact that God's righteous judgment has finally come upon the wicked, many of whom had murdered, shed the blood of so many of His people. They are celebrating the biblical truth that vengeance ultimately belongs to God. Justice and the final righting of all wrongs belongs to Him. And at this point, He carries it out. And the importance, friends, of knowing and understanding and even meditating on this truth is that according to Peter, this is one of the truths that allows us, that strengthens us to face unjust, wicked treatment now. And rather than responding to that mistreatment in kind, we can continue to do good even to our enemies and entrust ourselves ultimately to the justice of God. That He will do what is right. Friends, do not fall into this error believing that the final judgment is something that we should not hope in. That it's like this dark side of the Gospel that no one wants to talk about and and no one wants to think about. Every time we gather for prayer meetings, we always pray for the coming of the Lord Jesus for the coming of His kingdom and that it would come quickly. And this is not only a prayer for His salvation to come to His people. It's a prayer for His salvation, to quote another author, for His salvation to come through judgment. For for that very work of deliverance, for, for the resurrection of the people of God to come through the Lord carrying out His just judgment. It was through the judgment of the flood that God delivered Noah and the ancient world from its wickedness. It was through the judgment against the Egyptians and against Pharaoh that He saved His people Israel from bondage. It was through the judgment against the Canaanites that He delivered His people into the promised land. It was through judgment against the Assyrian Empire that He saved His people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was through the judgment borne by the Son of God on the cross that He saves us from our sins. When we cry out for salvation, we are simultaneously crying out for His righteous judgments to be brought to bear on the earth. And in the same way, If that has happened in the past, it will be through a judgment against all unrighteousness and wickedness of men that God will establish His kingdom on earth and deliver His people ultimately from sin, the power of death, and the ungodly who have persecuted them. When that day comes, the people of God, the, the great multitude, will sing together. Hallelujah! 
We will praise the Lord Jesus Christ and say of His mighty works that salvation and glory and power belong to our God. We look, friends, to our God for our salvation. And in that salvation, our vindication from all unrighteous treatment. And by hoping in Him and trusting in His promises, we are then able now to be faithful to Him and to obey His Word, even if it comes at a great cost. And we are able to do so with joy. and To do so looking to heaven itself. Looking up, even as, as the stones may be flying against us, we are able to, to join Stephen and look up into heaven and say, Behold, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. So we look to the promises to come, and we can bear the stones as they fly and then lift up the ungodly to the Lord. Forgive them for their sins, for they know not what they do. We can bless those who may be hostile towards us because we're looking not to vindication now, but to vindication then. So friends, I implore you this morning to be bold. To not be afraid. To fear God. And to prepare your own heart by looking to Christ. To looking to the day of salvation the day of judgment to come to sustain you even when those trials may be hard. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and ask blessings on His Word. Father, it is certainly the case that we see time and time again throughout Your Word that the people who are called by Your name are more afraid of the world than they are in looking to You as their hope and looking to Your promises. And I pray, Lord, that we would heed the words of the Apostle Peter here this morning. That once again, as we hear the command to not fear, but to fear God, And to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us, Lord, that you would already now be strengthening our hearts as you prepare us for the trials that we will inevitably come into. Lord, that we would be a people ultimately who are bold in proclaiming the gospel of Christ to a fallen and unbelieving world. And I ask this in Jesus' name.